Welcome to Cohen & Company's Chief Insights Tax Reform Edition podcast. This special series is designed to help business owners and C-suite leaders better understand the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and its potential impact. Hello, I'm Chris Madison, a tax partner at Cohen & Company. Welcome to this episode of Chief Insights Tax Reform Edition. Today, we're going to talk about a piece of tax reform that gets a little more complicated, but will have a big impact on the partners, shareholders of pass-through entities, Section 199A, which provides individuals a 20% deduction against their share of qualified business income. Specifically, we'll address some of the many questions surrounding this new provision and look at planning that can be done today. I'm joined by Mike Kolk, a partner in our tax department, who has spent a significant amount of time already interpreting this new tax code on behalf of our many small business and closely held business clients. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you, Chris. And you're right, this new code section isn't for the faint of heart, but it's important to understand what we know and what we don't know right now. So in one of our earlier podcasts on tax reform, we evaluated the option of converting pass-through entities, those defined as S-corporations, limited liability companies, taxes, partnerships, partnerships as well as sole proprietorships, to C-corporations in order to take advantage of the low 21% tax rate that was provided as part of the Tax Cuts and Job Act in December. At that podcast, we concluded that there is a place for C-corporations in the closely held business environment. We also noted that Section 199A could be an incentive to remain a pass-through entity. So explain to us, Mike, how does all this work? As you mentioned already, Section 199A provides for a deduction of 20% of qualified business income, or QBI. QBI is effectively connected with U.S. business income, not from interest, dividends, nor capital gains. It's okay if you're passive. And there's special rules for REITs, MLPs, and co-op dividends. Well, that seems pretty simple. However, I know it's far more complicated because I've seen the comprehensive flowchart you created to help our clients understand this topic. Where does all the fun begin, Mike? Well, I think the easiest way to approach this is to consider how things are treated at different taxable income levels. So for married filing joint taxpayers, think of Zone 1 as taxable income levels under $315,000. Zone 3 should be considered for income levels that are over $415,000, and Zone 2 is the $100,000 range in between. For all other filers, married filing separate, had a household, single, estates, or trusts, the income breaks are at half of that, so $157,500 and $207,500. In Zone 1, the calculation is pretty much as simple as you said, taking 20% of QBI. There is a limit of 20% of taxable income in excess of any net long-term capital gains, but that's just to prevent double dipping on the 20% deduction against any already preferred tax rates given to the capital gain income. In Zone 3, new hurdles get added. As I recall, there was some political wrangling that occurred to secure the votes in the Senate in order to pass the law. True. In Zone 3, the 20% of QBI deduction is limited to the higher of the 50% of W-2 wages paid by the business or 25% of those wages plus 2.5% of the cost of the business's depreciable property. This latter limit was added to secure Senator Corker's vote. By using the cost of the property without the need to account for any depreciation, Businesses like his in real estate can get the QBID without having to go through the W-2 wage limits. 
Okay, Mike, so to make sure I have this right, for example, if a rental business has net income of half a million dollars, 500000 it could potentially qualify for a $100,000 deduction, uh, 20% of $500,000. That would be if they were in Zone 1. However, if we look at the Zone 3 limitations, that same rental business, and let's assume for a second that they had $80,000 in wages, would be limited under the first calculation to 50% of those wages, or $40,000. So if that limitation was the only one that applied, that taxpayer would only be able to deduct $40,000, or 50% of their assumed $80,000 in wages. However, applying the second limitation, and assuming that the undepreciated cost of the property was at least $3.2 million, that taxpayer would calculate their limitation based on 25% of the $80,000 in wages, or $20,000, plus 2.5% of the undepreciated cost of $3.2 million. That's $80,000. Therefore, under that larger of the two limitations, which they're allowed to take the larger of the two, they would be entitled to the full $100,000 qualified business income deduction. Do I have that right? You do, and it's a pretty sweet deal. In fact, it's interesting because assets can be counted for their longer alternative depreciation class lives, which take buildings out to 40 years, and in no case can assets be less than 10 years. So it's all the more reason to hang on to your old furniture and equipment and vehicles, I guess. Sounds like there's something in there for every, uh, everyone in this provision. Are there any groups feeling left out? Well, there is a fairly wide group of business owners excluded from the deduction. However, they're not getting a lot of sympathy about it. For taxpayers in Zone 3 that also are in a specified service business, you are totally shut out of the qualified business income deduction irrespective of your business W-2 wages or depreciable property. Now, these businesses are defined as the traditional professions of law, health, accounting, actuarial or financial services, brokers, and consulting, as well as those with people with unique skills such as performing arts or athletics. And then they've added an additional category that says any trade or business where the principal asset is the skill or reputation of its employees. However, specifically excluded are engineers and architects. The skill and reputation of the employee language seems overly broad and difficult to quantify. What happens if I'm IM pay? Obviously, I'm an architect, but clearly have a special reputation. Well, the uniqueness and complexity of this section has spawned a vast number of unanswered questions, and that is one of many. We are all waiting for guidance. However, to close the loop on the framework of this provision, I should mention that there are intricate phase-out rules for people with taxable incomes in Zone 2. The phase-out for most of these business owners is fairly linear in migrating to the limitations we've discussed. But not surprisingly, the phase-out for those in the specified services reduce the deduction at a faster pace. Talk about an area needing more clarity. This provision is far more than just a tweak to the existing law. How can taxpayers, as well as their CPAs, interpret such a comprehensive change with so little detail? Well, it's tough. I mean, as CPAs, we can look back to similar areas with other provisions and use our professional judgment to craft a probable result, but the IRS and Treasury owe us a lot of explanations to confirm our thinking. Now, remember, this provision was intended to benefit all forms of pass-through entities, S-Corps, LLCs, partnerships, and even sole proprietors. However, the way the rules are written, In Zone 1, it's favoring sole proprietorships because they don't have a a deduction for owner's compensation. And perhaps S-corporations in Zone 3 wants the W-2 wage limits kick in. 
we need to look at the differences based on each taxpayer's specific facts and circumstances. So, Mike, what about cases where the taxpayer has multiple entities? Maybe we can get the best of both worlds. Well, this is probably one of the biggest unanswered questions of the new law. As written, each separate trade or business of the taxpayer is supposed to be calculated independently, and then the net results are combined to determine how much of a deduction the taxpayer can take. How a trade or business is defined, and if ones can be grouped like they can in other code sections, is a huge void of information. This is especially important to those in Zone 3. What do you mean? If a Zone 3 taxpayer has a manufacturing business that has lots of wages and property, there's a good chance that they'll get the full 20% deduction on the earnings of that business. However, if the same owner receives board freeze from other companies, there will likely be no W-2 wages nor property associated with that specific income. If groupable, 50% of the excess wages from the manufacturing business might enable a 20% deduction from the board fees. If not, the deduction might not be available on that fee income. This grouping technique is sometimes called packing. So would grouping all of a person's activities together always result in optimal deductions? This way everything that can be counted gets counted all at once? Unfortunately, it's far from that straightforward. Remember the Zone 3 service business we discussed that was entirely shut off from the QBI deduction? They would rather avoid grouping, in fact, might be more looking to find ways to split off business segments if those parts were not doing business in one of the enumerated service areas. This way they can salvage some of the deduction even in Zone 3. This is sometimes called cracking. So a law firm who has an LLC with high-earning members may try to spin out their title service company into a separate entity, or if they own their building that they practice in, pushing that building out into a rental arrangement. Since title and rental services do not appear on the list of specified services, perhaps the lawyers can get a 20% deduction for income in those areas. Keep in mind, we are awaiting clarification on just how far these techniques can be allowed. Yeah, I suppose if the law firm tried to split off the business of running the copy machine, they might have crossed some lines. So, other than cracking and packing, are there planning moves the businesses should consider today to take advantage of this provision? Well, there clearly are, and it seems like Section 199A opened Pandora's box in some ways. A lot of people are re-examining the issue of employee versus independent contractor. Depending on what zone you're in, it may be more beneficial to be treated as one way or the other. Unfortunately, there's lots of guidance in this area, and employee versus contractor issues were a focal point for the IRS back in the late 70s and into the 80s. This topic has re-emerged, but has a lot of guidance behind it. However, in other areas, such as where you have a specified service business, there could be much to be gained if income is sheltered or diverted from a Zone 3 taxpayer's return who might otherwise be denied the deduction in order to get their income into the Zone 1 range. Closer looks for ways to lower taxable income should address things like cash balance retirement plans and the generous new depreciation rules. Another impactful way could be to consider if the business income could be bifurcated in some way to split the taxability between other family members, C-corporations, or even trusts. Boy, it sounds like there are a lot of areas to explore in order to optimize the use of this new 20% deduction in 2018 and going forward. Mike, what should taxpayers take away from today's conversation in order to maximize their ability to preserve this benefit? Well, I would suggest you remain flexible as things unfold. There's a lot of newness and thinking involved here, and unfortunately, there are many significant areas where guidance is missing. 
It is a stated priority for Treasury to get the more burning questions answered, so work with your advisors to create a plan, then watch for guidance and adapt as needed. And with that, we're going to wrap up today's podcast. Thank you for your time today, Mike. We really appreciate it, and thanks to all of you who joined us today. If you'd like further information about this topic or would like to reference the flowchart that I mentioned earlier in the podcast that Mike had put together for us, feel free to visit our website, cohencpa.com slash 199A. Have a good day, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Chief Insights Tax Reform Edition. Subscribe to this podcast series at cohencpa.com slash podcasts. To gain more entrepreneurial insights that may impact you, visit us at cohencpa.com slash impact. Cohen & Company is not rendering legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Information contained in this podcast is considered accurate as of the date of recording. Any action taken based on information in this podcast should be taken only after a detailed review of the specific facts, circumstances, and current law.